Morning, everyone. Lots going on. A lot of people here. A couple more weeks to be able to wear the Hawaiian shirt before the plaid kicks in. Right? I go like vineyard for a while and then Acts 29. You know what I'm saying? Anyway. <laughs> it's good. We are so excited to have some Campagape people here, our friends. We're going to baptize people. So excited about that. <laughs> These are the days. These are the days. Get your Bibles, Daniel 4. We are uh, going to read from verse 19 to 37. Not the whole chapter. I'm going to spend some time teeing it up and telling the story of the first 18 verses. But uh, Ryan preached so wonderfully last week on uh, how the Lord delivered Daniel and his friends from the fiery furnace. They, I love that idea that they came out with their clothes not even smelling like smoke. God is a deliverer God. And... Um, all was going really well. All was going really well for Daniel and his friends and Nebuchadnezzar. But uh, we're going to hear about the fall of this king, the spectacular fall of this king. And I want us just to think about famous people who have fallen over the last while. Famous people who've fallen. Think of kind of the Wall Street Me Too movement and people like Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein have fallen spectacularly. Think in culture and entertainment of a man like Kanye West, who had a tragic breakdown publicly while he was performing on stage. Some of these people have already started to kind of be restored, but I'm just wanting us to think about people that have fallen. Think a few more years back about Martha Stewart, who represented everything wholesome and good and ended up in prison. Think even more years back, cast your mind to the Yorba Linda Presidential Library and think of Nixon, President Nixon, who fell. Closer to home and we think of the tragic fall of spiritual leaders in the church, people like Bill Hybels and Ravi Zacharias. Some of you would be listening to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Any of you listening to that? And that is about the fall of a mega church and its pastor, Mark Driscoll. And you know, when we hear of these things, our hearts are mixed, aren't they? Um, we might feel disappointed, even devastated. But quite often, we have a real sense of justice. Well, yeah, they got what was coming to them. They abused their power. They got ahead of themselves. They got arrogant. And pride comes before a fall. And many of us have that sense of real justice. And that's okay in some ways, but there can be something really, really toxic that gets into our soul. Liam Thatcher calls it the unintended consequences. And I'm going to use a phrase here that's shocking, but I think it's 
relevant. The unintended consequences of failure porn, where we actually get fixated with other people's failure. And we get some crazy, weird joy from their failure. Almost like driving along the highway and you go, why is there a traffic jam? And you come and you realize there's nothing going on on the highway, but on the other highway, there's a car wreck and people have just stopped and they're just fixating on this car wreck. And it's like, why? Weird. Why do you want to see that? And when famous people fall, it's like a moral car wreck. And our culture has this weird sense of rubbing their hands in glee. That's what Liam Thatcher says. We're listening to a podcast critiquing celebrity culture within the church and responding it with it, uh, to it with all the glee of someone flicking through a celebrity gossip magazine. It's kind of crazy. And today we are going to read about the fall of an exceptionally powerful and proud man. And we're not just going to point the finger, we're going to look at our own hearts and the pride in our hearts, and we're going to look at the healing of pride. That's what I want to speak about this morning, the healing of pride. King Nebuchadnezzar ruled in 6th century BC. He was the ruler of the then known empire of Babylon. Babylon was a city, but Babylon was an empire. It was colonizing the world. He was like the master of the universe. Babylon as a city was bigger and more majestic than present day New York City. It had its own skyscrapers. It had the famous Babylon hanging gardens. It was green, it was beautiful, it was statuesque. His army was the most preeminent army in the then known world. And the chapter opens with him saying, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I mean, there, there was no one who could fire King Neb. Like he wasn't hired, he wasn't voted, he was there. I mean, whose army was gonna fire him? And so he was prosperous, but he was at ease. He was, he was settled. He was one of those guys or girls that you just like, they always gonna be in favor and in power. And yet there's a, there's a crack we see. There's a crack in the veneer of prosperity and settledness. And we know what it is. The crack is that he has these bad dreams. He has these recurring nightmares. And in Daniel 4, he has another one. And it's not like the first one in Daniel 1. It's a different dream, but it's a little bit like Groundhog Day. He has this nightmare. He calls for his wise men. His wise men can't do anything. So he calls for this man called Daniel, who in his words says, he has the spirit of the holy gods in him. So King Neb's theology is not that great, the spirit of the holy gods, but he knows there's something extra with Daniel. He knows he's in touch with a deity that is powerful and is wise. And he, and he calls him in. And he tells Daniel about this dream, about this massive tree. And this tree has got a canopy that covers the world and the world comes and takes refuge under this tree. And then one day someone cuts the tree down and it lands 
and it's covered in the dew of heaven. And he says to Daniel, Daniel, what does this dream mean? This dream is freaking me out. In verse 19, it says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. It's like Daniel goes white as a sheet. Because God begins to download what this dream means. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar, I wish they would just call him Daniel. That's such a hard word to say. Answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. So already he's like, this is not gonna be good, O king. May the dream be for those who hate you. Let's get the verses up there if you can. Can you get them up there? The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O King, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. I mean, the King right now is feeling good. Yeah, I'm that tree. I'm that tree. My dominion has grown, reaches to the end of the earth. This is awesome. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the fields till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed sorry, for you from the time that you know that the heaven rules. Therefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. I mean, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be comical. Think of this picture. A king eating grass like an ox, wet with the dew like a bird, 
nails like bird's claws. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor of the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. The healing of pride, what we first see here is we see the heart of pride. And the heart of pride in verse 28, he looks 12 months after Babylon has warned him, he looks, he's on the roof of his palace. And remember, this was the same geographical site of the Tower of Babylon. You wanna say, dude, do you learn nothing? The Tower of Babel was this moment in Genesis 11 where Men said, let's build a tower to heaven. We can reach heaven. And God judged it. He smashed it down. He scattered them. He confused them. And now it's like he's doing the same thing. On the roof of his palace, he's looking at Babylon. He's saying, is not Babylon great? And it's the greatness that I have made by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. The heart of pride is this. Pride says life is by me and it's for me. If I've got good things, it's because of my mighty power and it's for me, for the glory of my majesty. I just wanna say, when I read that for the glory of my majesty, I just go, oh buddy, for the glory of your majesty. You, you've got something coming to you, buddy. And I think we can look at King Neb and go, oh, I mean, I would never say this. But in subtle ways in, in Orange County and SoCal, we've got, we've got conventions, we've got tools to veil our pride and hide our pride. But actually still, we honestly think if there's good in my life, it's by my power and it's for my enjoyment. And it sticks through, especially in the workplace and with, with our friends, doesn't it? It's like, if we really work hard, we hustle, we slave, we work overtime, and then we get a bonus, we get a promotion, whatever, we go, yeah, yeah. I worked hard, it's by my power. And you know what? I'm gonna enjoy that thing. And so if we get like the new house or the new car or the new watch or the new Michael Kors shoes that aren't mine anyway, they're my, my son's. He slaved for them, he worked at Michael Kors. We go like, yeah, I deserve this. Or otherwise, if we really work hard and we slave and, and we don't get rewarded and someone else does, we go like, I deserve better. I deserve better. It's in all of us, this subtle. And I think in our culture, we found a way to veil our pride through this thing called the humble brag. Right, the humble brag. All of us have done it in a way and it's a way to politely be proud. Let me think of some 
examples, you know. So someone might say, you know, graduating from two universities, you know. When you graduate, not just from one, but from two universities and you get like master's degrees and doctorates, you know, then they just, Christine's smiling. <laughs> You've never humble bragged about your two master's degrees. But, uh, you know, when you do that, you know, the universities are always just hitting you up for money. You know, these two universities, it's such a bother graduating from two universities. Humble brag, right? Or otherwise, like you might say something like, you know, that, that new iPhone 13, I, I, I just don't know where I left it. Was it, did I leave it in my Tesla? Did I leave it in the business lounge at LAX? Or did I leave it on the beach in Hawaii? I, I just don't know. I'm, I just can't, ah, you know. Or otherwise, like, you know, I just got out of bed. I just threw on an old T-shirt, hardly did my hair, and went out and just people just kept on hitting me, hitting on me, not hitting me, hitting on me. <laughs> they hit me, they hit on you. Never happened to me, but you know what I'm saying. The, the humble pride, the humble brag. Well, you go on a date and your phone keeps on blowing. I'm just so sorry, my, my, my phone just keeps on blowing up these clients. I'm just like overwhelmed with all these clients that just want my business. It's such a bother, I'm so sorry. Humble brag, right? I, you got the you got the drift, right? And I think what, what happens is we subtly get into what Tim Keller calls cosmic plagiarism. Pride is cosmic pr plagiarism, where we claim authorship for anything good that has come to us, and so we're also happy to take the credit. Cosmic plagiarism. And I wanna tell you that's in me and that's in you. I am the author of what's good. And I get to take the credit. And the contrast we know is humility. Augustine, one of those great early church fathers was asked, what's the greatest three Christian virtues? And he just said, humility, humility, humility. And, and humility is not the same as false humility. I think we are scared of humility because we think it's like a low self-esteem. So false humility was, is like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just the scum of the earth. You know, I'm worth nothing and God would do nothing good for me. That's not humility. That's false humility. And that's actually a form of pride. It's actually saying like, God is not good. But true humility actually does expect God to do great good but receives his good as a gift. All of humility is receiving God's great good as a gift. And when you receive something that doesn't feel like a gift, you still trust the goodness of God and say, I am God, not God, you are God. So humbly I say, I receive this thing and trust God that you are able to work it for my good and your glory. That's what true humility is. And Lord, if good comes to me, I will not take the credit. I will give glory to another. That's the heart of pride, cosmic plagiarism. And then we see here, we see the consequence of pride and boy, is it dramatic. Let's just read what happened. That his reason left him. His reason left him. And Daniel had warned him and Daniel, I mean, had brought this very, very clear word. You know what, O king, you are that tree. 
You are gonna be cut down if you don't break off your sin and repent. He warns him. And the king in his pride just goes, whatever. And he carries on. And 12 months later, while the words are in his mouth, this is Babylon for my glory and my majesty. He is driven, it says. He is driven from the throne. And he eats grass like an ox for seven periods of time. Seven periods of time could be seven months or some commentators say 18 months. I just want you to stop and imagine what this was like for the subjects of Babylon. This guy who is prosperous and at ease in his palace, as he's boasting about it, suddenly he is driven. Doesn't say anyone drives him. Suddenly he just leaves. And next thing they see the guy grazing like an ox. I mean, it's dramatic stuff. And what we see is that God is able to bring down the seemingly most secure people of power. In fact, at the end of the chapter, this is what he says. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. What I love about this is, as you see the consequence of pride, that he loses his reason. He loses touch with reality. He loses his throne. He loses all his wise men. He's out there for seven months minimum, eating grass like an ox. But actually at the end, he praises God for it. He says, God is able to humble those who walk in pride. Why is he praising God for this terrible act? Why? Because what God is doing is he is healing his heart from the greatest cancer, the, the cancer of pride. Beloved, we need to understand that pride has a consequence. And this is how I understand it. Nebuchadnezzar, who was a very powerful human, a very famous human, but he actually tried to make himself superhuman. He tried to make himself more than human. For the glory of my majesty is not human terminologies. If you said, if I said, man, well done on your promotion. And you said, yeah, it happened for the glory of my majesty. I would say, you have already lost reason. You have already lost touch. In other words, eating grass like an ox was just on the way to what was already happening in his heart and in his mind. He'd lost touch with reason and reality. He wanted to be worshipped. And what God was saying was, you are insisting on becoming more than you actually are, and I'm going to actually make you less than human for a while. I'm not going to do it because I'm cruel. I'm going to do it so that I can show you mercy in your humility. We have to understand that our pride is making us crazy. It's making us crazy. Because as Romans 1 says, even though they acknowledge God, they worship creation instead of creator. And therefore, Romans 1.20, God gives them over to a futile and darkened mind. Our culture is rejecting God as the author of creation and rather worshiping creation rather than creator. Why? Because if we acknowledge God as the author and the one who gives us power and to whom all glory, then actually the author has authority over how we should live. 
And that's what we don't like. Whether it's sexual ethics, whether it's politics, whether it's family, whether it's marriage, whether it's towards how we are to the poor. Actually, if we say, I am not God, God is God, God is the author, then God has authority to tell us how we're to be. And let's just see, this is not just King Neb. I mean, this is right in Genesis in the garden where the serpent, Satan, whose sin was pride, he tempts Adam and Eve in the form of pride. He says, oh, come on. Surely you will not die if you eat that fruit. In fact, if you do eat it, your eyes will be open and you will become like God's. In other words, he's saying, you'll become superhuman. Don't just be human. I mean, don't just be human with God telling you what you can and can't eat. No, be superhuman. You'll become like God's. And what happened? They were tempted to pride. They ate the fruit and they were lowered below human. And sin entered. They lost their true humanity. We need to understand that that's still the temptation of the enemy now in our culture. I've found it in, in parenting. Man, there's such, a, there's such a temptation in parenting to, to be nicer than God in these days. Because the culture is saying, well, don't give consequences to your kids because you must build up their self-esteem. So if you discipline them, you're gonna be cruel. They're gonna lose the sense of you loving them. And actually, but we end up being nicer than God. No, God loved King Nebuchadnezzar. And so he humbled him in order to show him mercy. And I just wanna say, parents, I'm giving you lovingly some authority back with your kids, no matter how old they are, to actually lovingly introduce consequences into their lives so that you can restore them. So with our kids, if they break their curfew, we say, you have exalted yourself above your curfew and now you will be humbled below your curfew. In other words, you won't just, oh, you broke your curfew. Here we go. Please come back at 11 again tomorrow. No, you came back at three in the morning. Now actually you're not going out for a week. Your phone is gone. Your car is gone. And you say, Alan, you're so cruel. No, actually that's God. It's godly to actually say there's some consequences and it's actually not to punish you, but to show you mercy and restore you back to freedom. Come on, parents. There's a way lovingly to bring consequences. I'm not even telling you what the consequences should be. But boy, if you don't bring consequences, you're teaching your kids pride. Pride makes us think we can ignore God's warnings. And you know what? God in His kindness, He will send you dreams to warn you. He will send you Daniels to warn you. And don't put them off. Early on in our marriage, Renelle was pregnant with our second child. And I've told the story before, but there's so many new people here. You know, I got into golf, Satan's game. I'm joking, I'm joking, sort of. I'm a surfer now, but, but I mean, I, I, got, I got so hooked up on golf, man. I was on the driving range every day. Here's my wife who's, who's pregnant with Sophie. And, and, and I was just, I mean, I was on the golf course when she went into labor. And I knew that she was close. I still went to golf. 
And so I rushed back. We just got there in time. She was gracious, etc. About three weeks in to this new baby, one of my friends comes to me and he says, if you carry on like you're carrying on, you're going to be divorced soon. My pride. It's like, who do you think you are? And I actually didn't receive it well. Went off in a huff and I went to her and she said, you know what Ashley Bell says? He says, if I carry on like this, we're gonna get divorced. Do you think that we are near to divorce? And she was just like, well. <laughs> and she was kind, but she didn't let me off the hook. She said, actually, I'm concerned. Actually, I'm concerned. And I gave up golf. And I'm more sanctified and wealthier than ever before. I'm joking. <laughs> but, but, but pride resists warnings. Golfers don't hate me. I play once a year, but I'm, anyway, whatever. A word to, to the proud. So we get the heart of pride. We get the consequences of pride, that we actually get lowered from our full human state because we try and make us higher than humans. But then you get a word to the proud. And I wanna look at Daniel for a moment. And he gets the interpretation by the Spirit of God. And it's like he goes wide as a sheet. And he says, O King, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. I just want us to think for a moment what this king has done to Daniel. He has invaded Daniel's nation. He has smashed his temple. He has dragged Daniel and his friends off from his family. I'm pretty sure he had Daniel castrated as a eunuch. He changed his name, forced him into Babylon University for three years. He was a man who it says here, oppressed the poor. You think of the political leader that you resist most, that you can't stand most. Just think for a moment. Imagine if God humbled them and had them eating grass like an ox. Would there not be just an ounce of rubbing our hands and glee and say, okay, King, I got the interpretation. You are gonna eat grass like an ox. You're gonna be driven from power. Surely there'd be a little bit of failure porn in you and I. We just going, this is going to be good. Let's get the popcorn. Because this guy's going down. I'm just saying, man, in my heart, I spoke to a lady after 8.30. She was just like, I feel so convicted about my heart towards leaders that I don't like. And what is it to stand up against injustice? Because he says, stop oppressing the poor, but actually not to rub our hands in glee. Woohoo! He's so gracious. He says, oh king, I wish this happened to your enemies and those who hate you. He actually doesn't want the king to go down. He says, now, now break off your sins, do good to those who are oppressed so that you might carry on in your prosperity. He wants the king to carry on in prosperity. And now we're talking for a moment about bringing the truth to people who've sinned and been brought down. We're really talking about evangelism. And I wanna say the heart of Daniel is a heart of kindness and compassion. And compassion speaks volumes when we speak the truth of the gospel. Because he is gonna carry on 
in verse 20 says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. He's calling him to repentance. This guy, he's bold. He could lose not just his job, he could lose his head for speaking the gospel to this guy. But he does it with kindness. And the king knows this Daniel is not being vindictive. Daniel, I think, is the exact opposite of Jonah. You know, when Nineveh repented, Jonah's like sulking. He's like, why? Why did you forgive them? I wanted them to go to, you know, H-E-L-L. I'm not allowed to say that word here, apparently. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There's a heart of great compassion. And compassion and kindness is the bridge that we build with people as we serve them, across which we wheel the 10 ton truth of the gospel. Evangelism must be a call to repentance. What we see here, think of the most hard-hearted sinner. And God is able to save them, it says. God is able to humble the proud and then restore them. What happens is we lose our faith to tell the truth because we don't really believe God can save. And you know what? It's God's job to serve. It's God's work to serve, save, sorry. It's our job to tell the truth. He uses our words. We must open our mouths and tell the truth. And one of the things we've got to tell is you need to repent. God's grace is good. His mercy is plentiful, but somehow evangelism in our day has been reduced to, oh, God just loves you just like you are and He just wants to do good to you. No, repent, break off your sin that He might show you mercy. I'm just trusting for a Spirit-empowered wave of both compassion and boldness in us. By God's kindness, we are baptizing people almost every week. And it's not just the pastors, it's, it's just disciple makers who are making disciples and speaking the gospel to their friends, but repentance must be at the heart of it. I wanna say, man, even our culture understands on the sports field, if you make a mistake, what do you say? Sorry, man, my bad. If you're in a restaurant, you spill your drink on your buddy's lap. Sorry, man, my bad. But somehow when it comes to our standing before God, we don't wanna say my bad. We wanna plead innocent instead of pleading guilty and pleading for mercy. But actually repentance, the heart of repentance is a change of heart and acknowledgement that actually I've fallen short of the glory of God. And then I come to the one who knew no sin, it says of Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel means nothing. It's not good news unless we face the bad news that we are sinful. I mean, you know, you, if you're speeding and someone hauls you over, do you start to go, no, 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 I'm innocent. I mean, how did that work for you? No, what you do, you don't plead innocent. You plead guilty. I'm guilty, officer. And then you plead for mercy. It's worked a few times for me. You should try it. Just, just Renell's like, bite your tongue, bite your tongue, bite your tongue, plead guilty and plead for mercy. The best chance you've got. And how much more before a holy judge who wants to adopt you as a father? Stop pleading innocent. Every single one of us have been proud. 
Every single one of us have claimed authorship for the good in our life and claimed the credit. I mean, let's just start there. You can at least repent of that. Oh God, I'm a sinner. I need mercy. And what we see here is that this is not a vindictive God who's just saying, I'm gonna make an example of you, Nebuchadnezzar. No, I'm gonna humble you to show mercy to you. And this is how it lands. The healing of pride. The healing of pride. I think the most beautiful words in the whole chapter, verse 34, 36. At the same time, no, let's read verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, can we just stop there for a moment? At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar. What's he gonna say? At the end of the days, seven months of eating grass like an ox, having nails like a bird, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and said, all of my education and my military prowess, I will concentrate my will in saving myself and I return myself to the throne. I expect him to do something like that. But he does the very opposite. Beautiful words. He says, at the end of these days, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned. Isn't that beautiful? The same guy who had raised his whole life against heaven, saying all of this is by me and for the glory of my majesty, that same guy now, he lifts his eyes to heaven. I think of, of my dog just looking at me for some food. Like no, like reminds me of that hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. He just lifts his eyes to heaven. And God is so quick. The moment we lift our eyes to heaven, God is so quick to restore. He restores his sanity. He restores him to the throne. He restores all his splendor and majesty. He restores even his counselors. God gives us much more than we deserve. And that's the grace of God. He gives us more than we deserve. Here's the gospel in Daniel chapter four as we land. Nebuchadnezzar, who was human, made himself more than human. And therefore God humbled him to become subhuman. Jesus, who was superhuman, fully God, willingly humbled himself to be human. Philippians 2, Jesus did not grasp at godliness, but actually emptied himself, taking on the nature of a human servant. He willingly humbled himself to be human. In fact, he willingly humbled himself to death on a cross, to being subhuman. Jesus became like an animal on the cross. Isaiah 52 said, he was so marred by, beyond description. He was like one from whom men would turn their face and say, you're not even human, you're like an animal. And he would sprinkle us with his blood. That's what it says. That's the gospel, that Jesus who was superhuman was willingly humbled to be human and then subhuman to restore you and I back to full humanity. That's the gospel. I wanna tell you that is good news. Who of us would not want that? And he wants to sprinkle us by his blood today, but it requires that we lift our eyes to heaven. And when we lift our eyes to heaven, He's so quick to restore. 
what was stolen. This is the gospel. As we baptize our friends, don't you think this is a powerful picture of Nebuchadnezzar's life? Baptism is like a willing humbling of myself as I go, go under the water, saying, God, I'm a sinner. I'm not God. I need a Savior. And in Christ's resurrection power, He restores us to full humanity in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray.